1: I'm Caleb Zakrin, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in History. Today I'm speaking to Professor Daniel Chirot to discuss his new book, You Say You Want a Revolution, Radical Idealism and Its Tragic Consequences. Professor Chirot teaches Russian and Eurasian studies at the University of Washington. In this book, Chirot attempts to answer a question that has dogged revolutionaries for centuries. Namely, why is it that so many revolutions seem to not just fail, but also completely backfire, often leading to even worse outcomes than were initially imagined. Professor Chereau, thank you so much for joining us today on the New Books Network. Hello. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your personal background and what inspired you to write this book.
0: Uh, I was born in France during World War II, during the German occupation, and. Uh, my grandmother and mother and I, as a baby, were protected from the Nazis in a village in Vichy, France, and were lucky to not get turned in. And when I became an academic, I was interested in history. I'd been interested in history since I was quite young. And uh, I did some work in Africa and then specialized in Eastern Europe. And it struck me how terrible history had been in so many places, and uh, even from the perspective of my own family, uh, who had been uh, in Russia and fled Russia at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, and then were in France and were subject to Nazi rule, and how unfortunate the situation has been for so many people, and of course, living and working in West Africa as well, I also saw the same thing. And so that just became uh, a, a great interest of mine, though earlier in my career, I sort of avoided these emotional topics. And as I got older, I became more interested. I wrote a book about tyrants. Uh, I wrote a book, uh, I co-authored a book about genocide. And um, I co-authored a book about the Enlightenment and the efforts of the Enlightenment, Enlightenment thinking to make the world a better place about its successes and its failures. And so that led naturally, now that I'm quite old, to this particular book about Revolutions, which engendered so much hope in so many places and so often turned out badly. One of the criticisms of the book and some reviews was that I didn't cover revolutions that turned out better. I did talk about the American Revolution, but there certainly were some that turned out better. And I did mention in the book what happened in Europe in 1989 when communism collapsed without much violence, except a little in Romania and, of course, a lot in Yugoslavia. But now it turns out, 30 years later, that the issues are not settled there. So even there, what seemed like a very unusual situation where whole regimes and ways of life and societies had been overthrown by revolutions that were peaceful, well, it hasn't always worked out as well. So. Uh, And that is certainly true with a lot of what are called third world revolutions. Uh, I did work when I was very young um, in the Peace Corps in West Africa, just after decolonization. And since then, I've gone back and done some consulting work for NGOs. And there, too, I I remember even a meeting with the president at that time of Niger, And uh, he was sort of joking. He said, well, I hope one day that Niger will be as big and strong as the United States. (laughs) And I sort of chuckled and said, well, you know, when the United States became independent, it had about the same population as Niger does now. And he sort of laughed and said, well, maybe there's hope for us. But actually, I've gone back and done some work there uh, and uh, more recently in the ivory coast during the civil war there and things have not turned out well there either all these independence movements that uh, had a lot of hope and i did talk in the book about angola uh, and algeria which i know very well because um, my first language was french and i'm still fluent in french and i followed the algerian war if i had stayed in france I would have been drafted to go fight in Algeria. Uh, Of course, I didn't stay in France, so I wasn't subject to their draft. But people my age were, and I have friends there who were in Algeria. And Algeria, when it became independent, there was a lot of enthusiasm about the third world, the third way Uh, it was going to be socialist, but not brutally communist. It had good resources. It had oil. It had good land. It wasn't overcrowded. And it's, it's, it hasn't worked out at all. So, uh, and even now it's in the news. It's corrupt. It's, it, it's not benefiting its people the way it should and so on. So all of this really fits into um, my uh, personal experience, my academic interests, my work experience. Uh, and I have to say that I didn't really find it that pleasant writing that book. Um some one reviewer, uh, I forgot if it was just an online review, something I read, accused me of just being uh, a reactionary who doesn't like change. Actually, I would be happier if some of these things <laughs> had worked out. And, and I think it's important to understand why so many have not.
1: I think one of my experiences reading the book was a sense of sadness. And not not a bad sort of sadness, but the type of sadness um, that comes when you recognize that things don't always work out as planned. And I think that in many ways, and even in your title, the tragic consequences, very much that a lot of these political goals uh, have resulted in tragedy. So I was wondering, you, you discuss many different revolutions, but I was wondering, broadly speaking, how you might define revolution.
0: Well, a rapid change at the very least in the economic system, but more broadly in the society, in the culture. And uh, I say at at the very least, um, I, I shouldn't have said at the very least in the economic system. I should have said in the very least in the political system, because I do think the American Revolution was a real revolution, and it was unusual in that it didn't change the economy, it didn't change the culture, it didn't change who was in the elite, it only changed the political system, but it did change the political system quite remarkably for that time for what was essentially at that time a European country, and it created at least the potential for a real democracy. And it became over time more democratic, though we all know all of the limitations and problems we've had with that. But until just now, we've moved mostly in the right direction. Whether we managed to keep that or not is another question, but that's a question for now. But other revolutions, the French Revolution changed more than just the political system. It changed the society in some ways. The Bolshevik, communist revolution changed a lot. Uh, The old elite was wiped out. The economic system changed drastically. The political system changed drastically. And the communists tried to change the culture. They didn't change as much of it as they had hoped, but they changed a lot. And I did include something which a lot of studies of revolutions don't include. And I have to say Why? So I included the fascists and particularly the Nazis. Most academics who have written about revolutions like them and favor the left, even while recognizing uh, some of the limitations. Uh, A good example is the great historian, late historian. He died a few years ago at the age of 95. Eric Hobsbawm whom I cite, who was a lifelong communist, actually. Well, I I knew him somewhat. I mean, I was at a conference with him for a week. Uh, I had dinner with him a few times. And he maintained his faith in communism for his entire life. This is very interesting because he really knew an awful lot. He was a charming man, a great writer. And in his book about revolutions, um, he sort of downplays the American Revolution which the left generally does because, well, it was a political revolution, but it was not an economic revolution. It was not a social revolution. And he plays up the French Revolution, which became a model for the left. So communist intellectuals, and here I would certainly include Lenin, who, whatever his faults were, was a real intellectual and very well-read, knew many languages. Uh, For him, the model... And the place from which to draw lessons was the French Revolution, not the American Revolution. So what he liked about America was Henry Ford and how to mass manufacture things, which he thought that communists would be able to apply, but not the political outcome. What he liked about the French Revolution was the period of the terror, the extreme left. And leftist revolutions in France, certainly, and elsewhere, always admired that. In France, as a matter of fact, for much of the 20th century until at least the 1970s or 80s when revisionist historians took over, the terror was sort of the ideal and, oh, it's too bad it failed. Everything was going in the right direction. Um, Now uh, the predominant view among French historians is that's not really correct. because the terror was a nightmare and things were going in the wrong direction. But the communists certainly took, Lenin certainly took, and um, the Chinese communists, the original leadership also was well-read. Some of them did know foreign languages. Mao didn't, but he read it in translation uh, and learned lessons from the reign of terror that failed, that was overthrown. And the lesson they learned was we should apply more terror more systematically, quickly to get rid of our enemies before they get us. Otherwise, we'll suffer the same fate as the far left in France. So it's the French Revolution that became the model. So what the Nazis did, fascism, that doesn't fit at all because that's not from the left, it's from the right. But in fact, Mussolini intended to revolutionize Italian society. He really didn't. There was much more talk. Um, I had a, a, a friend, actually, he was a family friend who was an Italian Uh, Born in 1908, Uh, he's of course uh, died by now. But um, and I remember his telling me he fled. He was Jewish and he fled Italy in 1938. And he was already a well-known aeronautical engineer. He came to the United States and was used here. But he said to me, "You know these stories about Mussolini and well, at least the trains ran on time." He said the trains didn't run on time then either. (laughs) But Hitler really did. He built superhighways. He really revolutionized Germany and, if, and, and he was well on the way to changing everything. The culture, of course, the political system, the economy, everything. He lost the war, so it didn't happen, but he had already substantially revolutionized Germany. Germany by 1938 was not like anything that had existed before in Germany, not like imperial, certainly not Weimar Germany, but not like imperial Germany either. It was a vicious totalitarian, ruthless state that was in some ways remarkably efficient in suppressing dissent and in building up the world's strongest army. By 1940, uh, Germany had the world's strongest army. So I think it was revolutionary. Uh, and it's something that leftist historians have not particularly wanted to admit, but I included it. and. Also, because even though the people who put Hitler in power were not exactly liberals, they were conservatives, but they, if they had gotten their way, there never would have been a Holocaust. They were anti-Semitic. They didn't like Jews, a lot of them, uh, but um, th- that was very common in Europe, and they were not uh, they weren't uh, paranoid about Jews taking over there wouldn't have been a holocaust probably what would have happened is there would have been a limited war with Poland and, uh, but they put hitler in power thinking okay this guy has populist appeal he can win votes in the weimar republic but we we can control him and then they found out like liberals in other situations not that they were liberal, but they were more moderate, that in fact you put some radicals in power and it's very hard to keep control. And they didn't keep control. And some of their own leaders actually wound up being killed by Hitler and others sidelined. So, and you see that in the French Revolution, and the Bolshevik Revolution, but there it's people that are left of center, like Lafayette, for example, who can't believe that the people he's worked with are gonna turn against him and eventually he flees because if he hadn't, he would have been guillotined. And he can't believe these radicals really mean that because he's sort of a a liberal. The same thing happens in Russia with Kerensky. Uh, He arms the communists to fight off the far right and he doesn't realize that he's committing suicide. And um, uh, there are parallels today you put power in the hands of people who say radical things and think, oh, well, we can control them. Well, good luck. So uh, so there is a general lesson there.
1: Yeah, I think your comparison of the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution is very fascinating. And one thing you talk about is the reason why the Russian Revolution had a different outcome, uh, a, a more severe outcome than the French Revolution was in part because Uh, Lenin and others learned and had studied the French Revolution. I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit about how revolutionaries have studied previous revolutions and how that has led to different outcomes.
0: So, yes, um, a striking difference between the radical Jacobins in France and the communists is that the Jacobins didn't really have a party structure. Sometimes we think of them as a party, but actually it was a sort of loose assembly of people who met and um, uh, and they didn't have a party apparatus. They didn't have a whole bureaucracy ready to take over. So when they take over, they're not really in full control and they don't have ideological rigor. They themselves are split uh, and there are... Uh, uh, those who were radical Jacobins like Danton, who wind up getting executed. Though, by the way, today in France, he's remembered as a hero, and there's a big statue of him in the middle of Paris. There's no statue of Robespierre. Uh, he, he's not remembered well, uh, though at one time they were friends. But um, uh, the, uh, Lenin uh, and early communist leaders said, look, if we're going to have a revolution, we've got to have a party and we've got to have a a party structure, and it has to be obedient. So well before they take power, even before World War I, at a time when it seems unlikely that they will ever be able to take power, Lenin insists on party strength and weeding out those who don't follow orders. By the way, Hitler does the same thing with the Nazis. Before it seemed as if they might take power. By 1927-28, they seemed like a marginal group. But he insists we have to have people follow. I'm the leader. If you don't like it, you're out. Um, And uh, here's here's what the communists learned. The reign of terror did not have, the Jacobins did not have a sufficiently rigorous party structure. And they were therefore able to really control and eliminate their enemies. And so what happened to them? They got eliminated. Well, we're not going to let that happen. The day we come into power, if we ever make it, we're going to get rid of our enemies quickly, and we're going to insist on party strength. Lenin still allows discussion within the top ranks of the Communist Party. Stalin does away with that. Uh, Not that Lenin was that tolerant, but he was a little more tolerant of his comrades. Stalin wasn't at all. But so that that's a really big difference: a, a tight party structure, and being completely ruthless in eliminating not just your enemies but your potential enemies as well. And so that leads to these mass purges. And of course, Stalin does that. Mao does that too. Uh, and, in the, and and it reaches a peak in the in the Cultural Revolution when his oldest friends and allies wind up getting purged, tortured, all sorts of terrible things. So so that's a really big difference, and therefore they're more successful, though we know that Soviet communism in the long run fell apart, but it took a long time. Um, and Whereas in uh, France, the reign of terror lasts a couple of years and is replaced by a revolutionary government that's more lenient uh, more corrupt and that, false than Napoleon.
1: Why is it that in in some of these revolutions that you discuss, the more moderate figures uh, tend to get pushed out, and why is it that the more ruthless people tend to benefit? It seems strange that the more evil people would when would become more popular. Why why is that the case?
0: Well. When we can say, you can say, I can say that the more evil people win out, of course, from their point of view, the right people win out. Right? <laughs> the communists didn't say the evil people won. They say we won and we're, we're the good guys. Well, yeah, we have to kill a lot of people, but we're, we're going to do the right thing. So it depends on the nature of the hostility to the revolution, the forces arrayed against it. It doesn't happen in, in America. Once the British admit that they're defeated, there are some radicals who want to take over, but they're put down rather easily. And there's really no outside threat. And an internal threat doesn't really develop. There isn't really a strong counter revolution. Those who favored the Tories, uh, th- I mean, the, those who favored the British uh, who had any position, flee. Uh, in France, what happens is that there's resistance from the aristocracy. Members of the aristocracy flee. They go to Austrian territory. Uh, when I say Austrian territory, I mean, I mentioned this. Of course, everyone who knows the history knows it. Be- what is today Belgium was was uh, controlled by Austria. So the Austrian empire the Habsburg Empire, is on the border of France. It's not way off in Central Europe. It's way off in Central Europe, too, but it's also on the border of France. They flee there. They form an army. Prussia and uh, Austria uh, go to war. Uh, You remember the Queen of France, who was much hated, Marie-Antoinette, is a Habsburg. uh, And she's a a member of the family that rules. and, And they're horrified by what happens. And the Prussians are too, and eventually much of Europe is horrified. What? You, 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 you killed the king? Well, it had happened before. It had happened in, in England earlier, but, but it didn't have such great repercussions uh, because the anti-royal reign of Cromwell didn't last that long. Uh, but uh, in the case of France, so there's very strong internal resistance. There are parts of France that don't accept the revolution. For example, a key place was the city of Lyon, uh, which was the center for uh, very expensive textiles and silk. And so its main customer was the royal court and aristocracy. And they don't like the revolution at all because they lose all of their economic basis. So there are places that revolt against it. Uh, There are peasant areas that don't like the aristocracy, but then when the revolution goes after the church, they go after village priests too. And there's a loyal following in some areas. Uh, And then there's a foreign invasion. So all of those things panic the revolutionaries, because they realize that if they lose, they're going to get killed. And the more radical forces say, well, you liberals, people like Lafayette, you know, you're not really very effective. First of all, you have some sympathy. You think we can make an accommodation with with the aristocracy and with the reactionaries, we can't, they're going to come and kill us. And we've got to mobilize popular support. We've got to do And so, uh, the revolution turns to them. That happens in Russia too. Um, when the Kerensky government is faced by, uh, a potential, uh, right-wing army overthrow, um, people, workers, uh, soldiers, sailors who are in the Army who don't want to fight World War One anymore, and that's a big issue there they say well wait on we're we're not we're not doing the right thing we're We're gonna get overthrown, we're gonna stay in World War one Kerensky hasn't pulled out of the war. We need tougher response, and so they start turning to the Communists who offer it so so that's that's really the explanation when the crisis gets so severe. Uh, You see that in in the Algerian revolution, you know. I mean, um, who in America, other than specialists studies, French colonial history? Well, it is very interesting. If the French had agreed to moderate reforms in the 20s and 30s, or even right after World War II, uh, they could have transitioned Algeria to become something like... uh, Maybe like a Commonwealth country, you know, like Canada or something like that. Uh, There were relatively moderate forces saying to the French, "You know, you can't just have 10 percent of the population ruling the others, not giving them citizenship. You've got to let us in. You've got to let us have more independence. You've got you've got to work out some system." The French resist, and so gradually, what happens is that the uh unpopularity of French rule. And by the way, they, it's very unusual to find people who like to be bossed around by racist outsiders. <laughs> and so even very moderate Muslims, uh, uh, Arabs uh, and Berbers, um, they really say, well, unless we fight a drastic violent war, the French aren't going to leave and they are going to maintain this unjust system. And what the FLN, the much more radical group, promises is they're going to fight to the bitter end, and so people turn to them. So that 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 makes a really big difference. Uh, I mean, we see the same thing with French colonial history in Vietnam, which concerns Americans a lot more because we eventually took over for the French and and had a, a similar disastrous experience. But um, the Vietnamese nationalists. Uh, were active long before World War II, and the French were unwilling to make any compromise. And so who eventually wins out in the anti-colonial war? The communists, who uh, are better organized, who know how to run secret cells, and who are willing to fight to the end. And the sort of moderates get pushed out because they don't fight effectively enough.
1: Uh, On that point of Vietnam, you. Paint a very interesting portrait of Ho Chi Minh uh, that I had not heard before. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about him as a revolutionary and what was similar what his similarities were to other revolutionaries and what made him different than others
0: yeah, so um, at some point during the Vietnam War, uh, some Americans uh, said, you know Ho Chi Minh's really just uh, a fighter for national liberation. Uh he's an agrarian reformer. Yeah, he's a communist, but you know, he's not he's not the bad kind of communist. And that was one of the ways of saying why are we trying to impede him? And another one said, no, he's a communist. He's 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 part of the world communist agenda. Um and uh he's he's been working with the Soviets and the Chinese since he was a very young man. He joined the Communist Party of uh, when he was young and living in France and the communists split off after the communist revolution in Russia. The communists, the, the socialists in Europe split between the communists and the social democrats. He was there at the founding of the Communist Party of France. He's a lifelong communist and therefore we have to fight him because he's part of this world conspiracy. Well, it turned out it was more complicated than that. Yes, he's absolutely, he was a lifelong communist. He worked for the Comintern. Uh, he lived in Russia for a while. He was an agent for the Soviets in China and Thailand. He was a very brilliant man. I mean, he uh, uh, you can watch uh, a uh, um, YouTube uh, interview with him in French. And uh, even as an old man, his French was still very good. And he did know some English. He evidently spoke fluent Thai and Chinese as well. And of course, Vietnamese. Uh, and he was a lifelong communist. But, but he also was a nationalist. And uh, I think I mentioned, I do mention this interview. And in the footnote, I have a link to it. And it's a wonderful interview because it shows you all the complexity. So it's an interview with a French reporter. And, in French. And uh, you can tell he stumbles. At one point, he asks one of his aides for a word, but uh, o- only once. And you know, his French is very, very fluent. Uh, and the reporter says to him, it's a woman, very naive woman, by the way, and very French. She says to him, oh, I know with some regret. She's in North Vietnam. This is during the war, right? Uh, he's at war with the United States, with South Vietnam. He's, I mean, it's a very difficult situation. And he was himself, by the way, in a difficult situation because more radical forces within the party wanted a more extreme policy. But the, this reporter, and he doesn't say anything about that in the interview, but this reporter says to him, um, oh, well, uh, uh, President Hogue, um, I, I note with some regret that French cultural influence here in the North doesn't seem to be what it was. Not that many people know French anymore. And Ho smiles <laughs> sort of chuckles and says, you know, the French are never going to have the kind of influence they used to have here. And it's clear that this French reporter thinks, well, why isn't everyone here speaking French? Well, (laughs) and and then she goes on, and and toward the end she says, people say that uh, North Vietnam, communist Vietnam is just really a dependency and uh, follows the lead of China. And all of a sudden, his face changes uh, spontaneously. And he says, jamais, never. And you can see, yes, he's a communist. He believes in communism. Um, He's collectivized. Uh, He's uh, uh, in this war. uh, uh, And he has said in the interview, and he said many times, when asked, uh, well, what about the differences between the Soviet Union and China? And he says, well, they're both our allies. I'm not going to take sides. Uh, and they are both part of the great war against imperialism. And America is an imperialist country, and, and communism is going to defeat them. And that's the way for the future. But he's also a, a nationalist. And and in some ways, somewhat, I don't want to exaggerate, more gentle. So. He doesn't want to purge those within the party who oppose him. He's willing to kill a lot of people. A lot of people do get killed, uh, but he doesn't believe in doing what Mao did or what Stalin did in purging people and he himself, by the time of this interview, though so the American never seemed to understand this, he's lost direct control but The party continues to sort of sideline those who disagree, but not execute them. And that's in contrast with what happens in neighboring Cambodia, which conducts a genocide and purges itself, if anything, even more viciously than the Soviets or Chinese do. And so I think that Ho Chi Minh's influence is a softening one in some ways. And he is a real nationalist. But, of course, to say he wasn't really a communist, he was just a nationalist reformer, well, that's not true either. And it's, it seems more evident to me now than ever, given what's happening in much of the world, that it is difficult for people to understand complexity.
1: Why is it that communism and Marx, Marxism in particular became so popular in a lot of the decolonial revolutionary efforts. Was it simply because communism was on the global stage in opposition to Western capitalism, or is there another reason?
0: Well, it's more than that, because what Marxism, and once there was the communist revolution, and then the Chinese revolution promised, was anti-Western hostile to colonialism but not anti-modern, not like some of the original fights against colonialism. So in Algeria, for example, uh, you know it takes the French decades to actually get control of the country, but the forces arrayed against them are the traditional forces, the traditional leaders. they're trying to fight a traditional war, and they uh, and, and they get defeated. I mean, they can't match a modern army, they they don't have the organization. And they don't reach out to everyone. There's still tribal differences and clan differences. What Marxism says, what Marx wanted, and what Lenin wants to impose, and eventually what Mao wants to impose, is modern science, modern technology, a modern standard of living. They don't want people to go back. They're not the Taliban. You know, The Taliban wouldn't fit in with the communists at all. They want to go back and live like what they think things were like in the 7th century. But the communists say, no, no, no. Marx said, capitalism invented a lot of very good things how to produce more, how to make people richer, how to make people more comfortable. And the more we go into the 20th century, the more evident that becomes, lifespans increase. And so they say, no, we, we don't want to abandon that. We can do it better than the capitalists. And so, and, and we oppose colonialism, but but we can bring the modern world and all of its benefits. And that's very different than sort of what you find among Islamic jihadists now. Well, the Taliban would be an extreme example, uh, uh, because it promises liberation and all the benefits of modernization. And you see, well, China today is hardly the ideal socialist society, but they say they they're still communists. They don't believe in. Western democracy. They don't believe in in much that the West has. But they do believe in science and technology. They want to build better universities, better. And the Soviet Union eventually does the same thing. And even Stalin recognizes, well, we can't get rid of all uh, intellectuals just because they have the wrong family background. We, We need modern science. And they do develop an effective modern science. They never quite catch up to the United States, but they do build atomic bombs and hydrogen bombs. The level of health care goes up. Cuba does the same thing. I didn't have anything about Cuba uh, in the book, but it's a good example. Castro hates the United States. Much of his appeal is Cuban nationalism, but Cuba develops the best health care system in Latin America. That's more equitable. It, it emphasizes biological research and medical research. And for such a small and poor country, it does a remarkable job. He doesn't want to eliminate the benefits that capitalism invented. He just says, we can do it better and at the same time, get away from domination by the Americans. So that's a tremendous appeal. And it appeals to a lot of Western intellectuals as well. So I mentioned the historian Eric Hobsbawm, there are many even more prominent people and even more so in uh, some parts of Europe, in France and Italy for a while the Communist parties after World War Two are the largest parties. Uh, Not only do they have this promise of a more effective modernization, but it turned out they were the most effective fighters against fascism as well. So there's tremendous appeal. And if you're an Algerian revolutionary or, or an African revolutionary or an Asian revolutionary and you want to throw the British out or the French out or the Portuguese, but you don't want to throw your society back into what it was before colonialism, then Marxism seems like an ideal solution.
1: At the very beginning of the book, you have a quote from Isaiah Berlin um, And I think I I want to read it because I think it's a great quote that really encapsulates a lot of the argument you make. Uh, Berlin goes, it seems as if the doctrine that all kind of monstrous cruelties must be permitted, because without these, the ideal state of affairs cannot be attained. All the justifications of broken eggs for the sake of the ultimate omelet, all the brutalities, sacrifices, brainwashing, all those revolutions, all this is for nothing. For the perfect universe is not merely unattainable but inconceivable. And everything done to bring it about is founded on an enormous intellectual fallacy. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, Berlin's influence on you and uh, this quote in general and how it encapsulates some of the arguments of your book.
0: So in the, in the uh, immediate decades after World War II, Isaiah Berlin was uh, one of the philosophical heroes of liberalism. Uh, He was fluent in Russian. He knew knew Russian history. Um, uh, He knew the history of communism. He was influential in Britain. He often came to the United States, lectured and taught here. Uh, And that quote, by the way, the quote about the eggs, that, that was a common saying that you would hear about communism. Well, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. You know What that has to do with killing millions of people, I'm not so sure, but somehow that resonated. I mean, the, the meaning was, well, if you're going to bring about change, you're going to have to use some violence because you're going to get resistance. And so you have to do this. And so he's saying, you know, all this stuff about you need violence to overthrow the old system in order to bring about utopia, not just a little reform. Lenin, by the way, hated the idea of reform. He was very opposed to trade unions because he said, well, the problem with trade unions is they get a salary increase and a few benefits and they're happy. Well, but they haven't overthrown the system. It remains just as bad as ever. They're just getting a few benefits. So we can't pay any attention to that. We've got to get rid of that. That's not what we are. We're going to overthrow everything. Well, Berlin says that's because (coughs) those revolutionaries think they can attain utopia. He says, no, you can't. They may win politically, and certainly in his lifetime, it looked as if the Soviets were there forever, uh, but they haven't created utopia. Uh, there are all sorts of things wrong, and so those millions of deaths, they don't justify uh the utopia that was supposed to exist, because that utopia can never exist. We can never have a utopia. And that's really part of the thinking of of enlightenment. Um, Even the people who wrote the American Constitution, one of the reasons we have such a difficult system that's so hard to get anything done is that the people who wrote the American Constitution didn't trust humanity. And they thought, we're never going to have a utopia, so we have to put in measures that block our worst instincts. Um, And so uh, I'll go back to Eric Hobsbawm. He had said in his autobiography, and he was quite willing to say it, that if it had worked, and he outlived communism because he, he died well after 1980, I mean, outlived European communism. If it had worked, it would have been worth the cost. But the point is, It really never could have worked. What do you have in China today? What you have in China today is an almost classical form of fascism, a a society run by an elite, a high degree of inequality, modern, aggressive, militarily aggressive, run by a small elite that considers itself superior to everyone else. Has it worked? It's worked in some ways. China is a rich and powerful country. Um, Has it created a utopia? No. Were all those deaths that Mao imposed necessary? No, they weren't necessary. It wasn't necessary at all. Um, And if what your goal is, is to make society better, there's a better way than killing millions of people. Um, But of course, Mao didn't think so. you I know, mean, one of the problems with China is, as long as Mao is their hero, in the long run, um, uh, they're not going to have, not be, they'll not be able to gain the benefits of personal freedom, and personal well-being that more liberal democracies have. But liberal democracy has this problem. I mean, in some ways, I don't want to exaggerate, but in some ways. Uh, President Biden is sort of a classic, somewhat naive liberal. He came into office saying, well, I, I, I can bargain with everyone. Uh, and Obama was too. I mean, the Obama administration, now we see some of the results of that thought about Putin. Now, you know, we can, we let's be reasonable. No, you can't. That's what Chamberlain thought about Hitler. Well, you know, let's be reasonable. You don't really want to world war look at what happened in world war one well no so isaiah berlin is well aware of that but today isaiah berlin is not read or quoted as much for many reasons uh, but one is that liberalism as such is in decline
1: you have a a quote and it's uh, from the front cover of the economist on october 26 2017 and the quote is as the world marks the centenary of the October Revolution, Russia is once again under the rule of the czar. Uh, why did you choose to put that quote at the header of your chapter on peaceful revolutions?
0: Well, I think it was obvious what was happening in Russia. Well, and of course, <laughs> now that seems even more the case. But uh, I don't think The Economist was being particularly bold about that. It was already pretty clear what was happening. Uh, and uh that much of his behavior i mean you you've seen the newsreels just just the pomp and and, and always in these old Czarist palaces, I mean with all the marble and gold and uh, and and his own personal position uh it doesn't seem as if he has children who will inherit his position, but uh Other than that, it's very much Tsarist Russia with Tsarist ambitions. Uh, It's not just communist ambitions. Putin is a little ambivalent about communism, actually. In his speech uh, about Ukraine, he blames it all on Lenin. Uh, So uh, at the same time, he doesn't want anyone to attack Stalin uh, and is purging historians who... um, have written about Stalin and and, and the horrors under Stalin's rule. Because Stalin was a, a nationalist success, he built up the Soviet Union and expanded its influence. But the expansion was very much along the same lines as what the czars had been doing for a long time. Remember, before World War I, most of Poland, not all of it, but most of Poland was part of Russia. The Baltic Republics, there were no Baltic Republics, it was part of Russia. Finland was part of Russia. Uh, and so uh, now some are saying, well, Putin isn't just trying to revive communism, he's trying to revive an imperial Russia. Uh, so so that seemed at the time that I was writing this book, an apt quote, and it turns out that it has been.
1: This is obviously you know, something that might be difficult to you know, understanding the reason for why Russia is invading Ukraine. Obviously, it's hard to fully know know what their end game is. Um, but do you think that part of part of it is the fact that this might benefit China by distracting Europe and America, and that China will, in the long run, reward Russia? Or is this just destabilization for the sake of destabilization, and Putin trying to, you know, secure as much? power and influence as he can while he's still alive? Uh,
0: From what I've read in the news, and I do want to emphasize, I haven't been talking with either Putin or Xi Jinping recently. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, from what I've read in the news, the Chinese actually are trying to hold them back a little. Because they really depend and continue to depend on being able to trade with the world. I mean, we have a very strange situation. The Soviet Union was never like that. The Soviet Union exported some things and imported some things, but it was not in the world trading network. Um, uh, uh, And um, China really is. So we have a hostile power with which we, the Europeans and the Americans, are completely interdependent. Uh, and so they don't want to push too far. And in fact, they've just said Ukraine is not Taiwan. Taiwan has always been part of China. And, and so, what does that mean? It means it's sort of a gentle hint to the Russians. You say Ukraine has always been part of Russia. Well, Taiwan has always been Chinese, but not Ukraine. <laughs> so, so, don't push this too far. I don't think that he's doing this to help the Chinese. Now, if we let, and the Europeans let him get away with annexing Ukraine, that does send a signal to China that the United States really is what Mao used to say, a paper tiger. Um, But that's an incidental result. Uh, I think that uh, the Chinese leadership is considerably wiser than Putin and his immediate circle are. And they understand that what he's doing is actually solidifying NATO and making the United States position actually stronger. So uh, now the other thing is if these sanctions are applied, and it's already happening to some extent, Russia becomes more dependent on China. Do the people in Russia really want to become a Chinese dependency? So China is already taking over the economies of Central Asia, which the Russians consider part of their sphere. The Chinese are not going to take over those countries physically. They're taking over their economies. They've really taken over some important parts of the economy of eastern Siberia. They get resources from there. There are a lot of Chinese who have moved over the border. Um, and um, I'm not a China expert, and I never learned any Chinese. Uh, but when I was in Beijing uh, about uh, 15 years ago, uh, I had friends there who were Russians and who were living there. And what they told me was that uh, the Chinese looked down on Russians um, I mean, China has a reputation, but Russia, does do, uh, practically every place has a reputation once you get to know it, of being racist, uh, and the Chinese sort of look down with some degree of contempt on what's happened to Russia. And as any sort of sanction pushes Russia closer to China, yeah, they'll get some support, but this is not to, for the this is not to the benefit of the Russians. And I'm not sure the Chinese want to be the major supporters. They're already overextended. The Belt and Road policy is cutting back some. They're somewhat overextended. I don't, I don't think they, they want to be <laughs> the main support of Russia. So, yeah, they want to buy the oil and the, they want to buy the gas. They want to buy the lumber. They want to buy the natural resources. But um, I don't think that the outcome um, is good for either Russia or its people, or really for China. China doesn't really need that.
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Um, I'm sure our listeners will find that very interesting. Uh, Obviously, you know, in a book uh, about revolutions, there have been so many revolutions, you can't talk about everything. Um, Two are, you know, revolutions or or significant movements that uh, aren't mentioned. And I was wondering if there's maybe a reason why you didn't, uh, Mentioned them were the Indian independence movement and the end of apartheid in South Africa, and then also maybe not so much a revolution, but the uh, civil rights movement that ended Jim Crow. Um, I was wondering if if there's a reason why you didn't include them, if it was just a matter of space, or because they don't necessarily correspond to the the violent revolution model in the same way.
0: Uh, I mean, it's, it's part of, of both. Um, I know that the civil rights Changes are called a revolution, but, uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. And just as there's nothing wrong with talking about the Industrial Revolution, uh, you know, um, but uh, there was a, dra- there has been a, a real change. Uh, and uh, I'd like to collect old magazines, but not ancient ones. It's really interesting to look at Life or Time magazine from the 1950s. They are so racist. And at the time, I was in high school and in the 60s in college. I didn't even realize it in the sense that that was normal. The only ads in which you see white and black people together is when the black person is a, a servant. or And then, of course, there were magazines for African-Americans where the ads did have black people. But you look at ads today, and it's a drastic change. So it's not just legal changes. And in certain more liberal areas, um, you see much more mixing than you did. So there really has been a change. I didn't include that because there wasn't one violent uprising that changed things. There was no war. And the change was slow and gradual. It actually starts well before the 1950s or 60s. There's a long-term movement. you know. And now uh, historians, particularly now during Black History Month, a lot of that stuff is coming up again, but it's been written about. And, and uh, I mean, I, 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 had, I had read some of that stuff long ago. Uh, so it goes back and it's quite gradual. So it's a drastic and very important change. Um, we could get a reverse movement, but I don't think we'll ever go back to what Jim Crow was like. And there has been some more racist violence, but I don't think we'll ever go back to the kinds of lynching which did occur um, uh, widely in the 1920s and 30s and uh, tapering off gradually. Uh, uh, But So I wouldn't consider that a revolution. What happened in India is actually, I could have said, and also in South Africa, so, both of them in some ways resemble the American Revolution more. In the end, the British gave in. Now, there was a lot of violence, but it wasn't fighting against the British. Uh, there was violence over the split, which turned into this endless Pakistani Indian problem, and the problem in India today, where, where the Indian government is going after Muslims. But the British understood. Um, And and here, the British electorate at at the end of World War II made a very wise decision. They threw Churchill out. And he was stunned because he was the hero of World War II. But Churchill, uh, who I greatly admire and and who really helped save democracy, was an old-fashioned colonialist and a racist. He thought, well, the Indians aren't ready to run their affairs. We have to stay there. And uh, that wasn't the only reason he was thrown out. I mean, the, the, the British people wanted the kinds of social democratic reform, which the conservatives weren't at that time willing to accept. But they were lucky. You know, now they did fight to try to keep control of Kenya. But then they they gave it. They didn't have any of the terrible long lasting wars that the French had in Indochina or in Algeria and, and explanations for that. So it is a worth, and there were, by the way, Indians who wanted earlier to be much more radical. And there's a whole interesting and complex history about the rise of Congress, the name of, of the party, uh, and Gandhi was sort of the, the godfather of it, but Nehru was the actual leader of it. Uh, and you can look at, at newsreels old on YouTube of Nehru and his speeches it's very interesting he gave the speech about independence in English at a time when probably certainly less than 15% probably less than 10% of the people in India understood English so they kept that connection and now I mean of course in Algeria the elite still knows French but uh, but there wasn't that bond that remained and so and also Nehru was a convinced democrat and so there was this more gentle transition now some people have accused Nehru and the whole early independence movement of not being drastic enough leaving India with lots of its problems that it's never solved they wanted to solve the caste problem they haven't solved the caste problem the poverty problem the inequality problem Uh, but uh, it's it's a revolution that at least for decades turned out to be more like the American Revolution in that sense. And the same thing in South Africa. I mean, there was violent resistance and the white government was able to control it. But in the long run, it would have turned into this terrible, unending, bloody civil war. And for various reasons, one of which was with the fall of communism, in 1989, Western countries paid started paying more attention to what was going on in South Africa, and the South African white government could no longer say, we're, we're, we're not fighting to keep down black people, we're fighting against communism. All of a sudden, that didn't make any sense. And the leadership sort of understood, okay, we have to make a compromise. So there's been a political revolution, but... There hasn't been an economic revolution. And so South Africa today <coughs> is one of the most unequal places, inegalitarian places in the world. The whites still control a huge part of the economy. And a small black elite has been left has been allowed in because they have political control. But they really haven't solved their problem. Now would a, a, a violent left wing revolution have done any better well you can look at Rhodesia where in fact it got more radical and ruined the economy so here's a dilemma so it's very interesting but you know the short answer to your question is you can't do everything (coughs) and and India America with the civil rights issue South Africa, they're all very complex situations. And um, you could say that even with the revolutions that I did cover, uh, I could have said a lot more, but at a certain point. But I mean, that's my explanation for why I didn't, why I didn't pick those. Um, I I I could have done much more with Cuba. Instead, I chose to do something that Americans Seem not to know. And I'm not talking just about the general public, which doesn't know much history, but I found this with my colleagues at the university who know very little about the Mexican Revolution, unless they're Latin American experts. I mean, if they're Latin American experts and uh, even have a colleague who studies the Mexican Revolution, of course they know a whole lot. But uh, those who study Asia or Europe uh, or uh, colleagues I had in sociology, somehow. You know, they've all, they have all learned something about the French Revolution in high school or in college. Not about the Mexican Revolution. Well, that was a very significant event and a very bloody one. And they're our neighbor. Of course, I found with our students in Seattle who live so close to Canada, they don't know much Canadian history either. In fact, some of them don't even realize Canada is a foreign country. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, uh, I, I was sort of shocked by that, and I read about it, and I chose to have quite a lot about that and why it failed, why it took place and why it failed, and why it didn't come out like the French Revolution. So they were, But there were analogies, uh, a potential Napoleon, a potential military takeover, uh, and I, mean, I tried to explain why it didn't come out the same way, but had some of the same dire effects, namely a terrible, bloody episode. Uh, At the start of the Mexican Revolution in 1910-11, Mexico had about 14, 15 million people, and about a million people died. I mean, that's a lot. About half actually were probably killed and the the other half from disease and famine. And, And the last really bloody episode, which so few of us know about, was the War of the Cristeros, which was an uprising very similar to what happened in France against the revolution in an area called the Vendée, of religious Catholic peasants and people in towns turning against the revolutionary government that had this fixation with crushing the church. And this is an aspect of revolution that generally is difficult for Americans to understand. Our revolution was not anti clerical because there was no clerical establishment. There were local ones, but from the very start, there was toleration. There was no state church. And our founders insisted on that. And they understood if you have a state church, it creates problems. France had a state church, Mexico had a state church. That was the Catholic Church. <coughs> and so the revolution was anti clerical because. The church controlled a lot of land and was hand-in-hand with the elite. But village priests were also generally poor, uh, helped their parishioners, were looked up to. And so when the state turned against them and tried to wipe them out, there was a revolt and a bloody war in which several hundred thousand people were killed in the late 20s. 1920s, uh, and so it's fairly recent. And so, how come we don't know about that?
1: A big theme that you that you look at with a lot of these revolutions is that the elite seems to be disjointed or weakened. And I was wondering when you look at today's contemporary Western elite, be it Joe Biden or Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg um What are some of the weaknesses you see and how you might can uh, how you might counsel the elite billionaire class into how they could avoid uh, a violent upheaval and revolution what would, what would you say to them
0: <laughs> okay. well uh, uh, first let me go back to uh, the basis of what I said there so the French Revolution was started by the French aristocracy now they had no idea what this was going to do. But they were refusing to pay taxes. They were trying to claw back some of the power they had lost during the reign of Louis XIV, when France had become a much more centralized absolutist monarchy, but not sufficiently to be able to raise the taxes it needed. The French state went bankrupt, and the aristocracy refused to pay its fair share in taxes. And the monarchy and people around, some of whom were quite intelligent, around the king, Louis XVI, were tearing their hair out, I mean figuratively, or at least taking their wigs off to tear their hair out, uh, because they couldn't raise enough taxes and France went bankrupt. And of course, as you probably know, the decisive move to bankruptcy was France's participation in the American Revolution uh and uh, france played a decisive role it's not clear that the americans that washington could have won without french help and uh, even at the battle of yorktown it was the fact that the french fleet blockaded the british and so they couldn't get their cornwallis um, couldn't get his the help he needed and uh, and the french aristocracy precipitated the calling of the estates general which was an ancient institution that hadn't been used since the early 17th century. And that set off what became the French Revolution. Uh, In Russia, uh, the Tsarist Tsarist regime was discredited um, um, by Rasputin, where the elite there, both the middle class elite and certainly the aristocracy, landowner aristocracy, despised Rasputin and had lost confidence in the Tsar. And so you repeatedly see, even in the American Revolution, I mean, what happens, you know, people like Benjamin Franklin don't want to split off from England, and then they sort of lose faith. So it isn't as people lost faith in the American elite, but they lost faith in the British. And so uh, and, and the British were too stubborn to reform in time. Okay, Now, what does this have to do with the United States today? Well, I don't think we're about to have a violent revolution. And I'm not sure that uh, the people most at fault are people like Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates. You know, sometimes uh, friends I have who don't live here ask, uh, since i I've really just retired you know how how are you doing uh, do you have enough retirement money and I say I'm terribly poor uh because look at my neighbors Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates <laughs> but i mean I'm actually not terribly poor but uh, uh they're really more uh sort of the symbolic extremes, and there are others um uh, and some um I mean, I think the Gates family, for all of its fault, has done a lot of good. And, you know, there's news about the recently divorced wife of Jeff Bezos, and she's doing a fantastic job. And he seems to be more concerned with getting people out into space. But anyway, that's not the problem. The problem is we have a, a dysfunctional tax system. If you've ever had to make up a complex tax return. You know that. We have a bizarre tax system. We have an outdated constitution that was, after all, written to accommodate conflicting interests, including slave owners, 250 years ago. And we're not solving our problems. The United States has the worst health system of any advanced country, It's more expensive than any advanced country, much more expensive, for example, than Canada, with worse outcomes, higher mortality. You you know all that. Everything's blocked. And the outcome now is that with the popular discontent over that and the inequality and the precariousness for the middle class, the lack of affordable housing, people are getting frustrated and we have a blocked system. I think if Jeff Bezos gave away all of his money, it wouldn't help that much. We have a block system. And in that sense, it's like what there was with the French Revolution. But on the other hand, we're not on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, The economy still functions. um, But we do have a a long-term problem, and it's getting more severe. so whether you like Mark zuckerberg or not he's i don't think he's the problem it's more um, it, it, he's it's more of a symbolic example of what's wrong so back in the nineteen fifties uh when this country was in great shape economically uh and Uh, at a very powerful position, the inequality was not as great. Um, Inequality decreased in the United States from the time of the depression into the 1960s and then leveled off, and then it has greatly increased. People don't really understand why. It's a bad tax system. Part of it is globalization. It's happened to some extent everywhere, but rarely or or almost never in other advanced democratic countries as badly as here. Uh, And yet we're blocked. So we do have this problem. And in the long run, it, it is producing some very destabilizing effects. The polarization, the election of someone like Donald Trump, Uh, I mean, my colleagues have always considered me to be conservative. Um, In the past, I even often voted for Republicans. So what's happened? What's happened to the Republican Party? That's a very bad sign uh, that conservatism and liberalism are both in decline, and we have other things taking their place. So in the long run, yes, I mean, we we could have... More violence, we could have some real troubles. But remember, in the case of France, the precipitating event actually, there were long term problems that weren't being addressed. The precipitating yeah. event was France's particip- participation in, in the American Revolution. So um, if we have uh, something that bankrupts our government, if we have a depression, yeah, I don't, the outcome might not be as good as what happened in our depression in the 30s. People who disliked Franklin Roosevelt would accuse him of being a traitor to his class, which I suppose he was, and accused the New Deal of being socialist. It wasn't socialist, it saved capitalism. Roosevelt wasn't a socialist. He was for helping people And controlling some of the excesses of the stock market and of capitalism. But he wasn't anti-capitalist at all. He saved it. If we have another depression, who knows what will happen? In Europe, the depression was a catastrophe politically. Uh, In Germany, the rise of fascism. So who knows? But I don't think we're in a good place. But I don't think this is 1789 yet.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um I was you mentioned that you recently retired and I was wondering if you're working on on any new books in retirement or if you're reading anything, watching films. I loved the film recommendations in the book by the way. I uh, <laughs> put uh the Sergei Eisenstein uh movie about the October Revolution on my list so right. looking forward to watching that.
0: Yeah. Uh it said that actually more people got hurt in the in, in making that movie than in the actual event, <laughs> uh, because I mean the, the when they stormed the uh, the palace, the Bolsheviks there actually weren't that many people killed. But anyway, um, uh, there are a lot of good movies. One thing that's really interested me, and it has something to do with my own uh, background, is uh, the issue of treachery and collaboration. It comes up with American politics, too. You see people collaborating, say, with with Trump, Republicans, who know what's bad about him. And yet they collaborate. But much more drastically, collaboration in difficult, really difficult circumstances. And there's a television series called A French Village I can send you a link that's a brief introduction to it.
1: Yeah, that would be, that'd be great.
0: Yeah. Uh, a about French village. From France during the German occupation and about all the complexities. of Who's a traitor? Who's a collaborator? Why? And the general issue of treachery interests me. I recently read a biography of Benedict Arnold, who's the classic traitor. He was a very gifted man. He was also greedy, arrogant, And wanted nothing but extreme praise. And he felt he wasn't getting enough praise and he wasn't getting paid well enough. And so he betrayed America. But some people who are traitors actually believe in what they're doing. The spies who gave away atomic bomb secrets to the Russians thought that they were doing the right thing. They weren't just greedy. And when you have governments that you disapprove of, and you work with them, and you collaborate, what's the line? So that's a topic that greatly interests me. Uh, But there's so many others. And what I'm finding is that having retired and not having the discipline of preparing courses and following a schedule, I think this happens to a lot of newly retired people who have all of their wits about them. Um, I'm finding it hard to be as disciplined as I used to be. Uh, I mean, there was a point, especially when my children were younger, there were children, there was work, was, I traveled a lot. I mean, I just had to schedule things. And now I don't have to schedule things and I'm getting less done, even though I have more time. But I, I hope to recover from that. So I'll send you the link to a French village. It got an award. And they asked me to make a comment. It's very brief, and it has a few scenes from it. And I find that interesting. But there are so many interesting things. There are new novels. There are new uh, history books. And some history that gets written is really very good. Uh, not all of it. A lot of professional academic historians are too obscure. But, uh, but some of it is is really good. And, and there are always new things. Uh, even in Russian history, I mean, it's fascinating. That speech by Putin was fascinating. It was one huge lie. He <laughs> lied about history. He lied about the present. He does he believe that? And, and who works with him? Um, do the people around him actually believe what he's saying?
1: Yeah, Alexander Dugan. is. I don't know if, are you familiar with with Dugin?
0: Uh, I know the name, yeah, but is there anything recent? Or?
1: I, I don't know if anything recent, I just um,
0: I, I don't even know I mean, I, I recognize the name, but I can't say that I, I can place it
1: He's a, he's, I don't really know what his status in Russia is right now. I was fascinated by him a, f- a few years ago and he was I don't know what like the equivalent would be in America, but he was a, a Oh, I, a, I
0: know a, who you mean yeah,
1: yeah, the political theorist, who's oh, a, a yes. very anti-Democrat, anti-demo- and
0: he's... Oh, yeah, no, no, actually, I'm sorry, I, I I, wasn't thinking that way, I thought you were talking about some American, and I... So oh, no, I, yeah, no, no, no. No, 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 no. I, yes, I, I do yeah, know. Yeah, I should have
1: said his first name, and I'm probably what? pronouncing it wrong, too.
0: No, 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 that's fine, yeah, I, I just it just didn't click, but of course, yes, I do know, and I have read about him, yeah, um, so uh, you're wondering what he's thinking, well, you know, I don't know what he's thinking, but... He's certainly a prominent figure. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, So, um, but uh, who collaborates with him, who who doesn't? Why uh, are there people who work with him just because they're afraid? Uh, I'm sure there's some true believers, but I'm also sure there's some who are just opportunists. His uh, former prime minister, and for a while, President Medvedev, Medvedev, I think is just an opportunist. <laughs> uh, I don't think he's a true believer, but he's taking advantage. But um, so these issues come up all the time. The same thing in China, and um, the same thing to some extent here, um, and always in many situations. Uh, who, what motivates people to to accept certain political bad situations and others to resist? Uh, I, I wrote. I did write a few essays for something called American Purpose. I don't know if you've heard of it.
1: Yeah, I've heard of it before.
0: Yeah, so I have, uh, uh, I'm have. on their uh, editorial board, and, and I've written some essays. Uh, I recently wrote an essay for Project Syndicate.
1: Yeah, I, I read Project Syndicate a lot.
0: Yeah, so That's I had yeah. on, on the, uh, the last day of uh, January, just about the last day of January, um, I had a, an essay there about uh, the problems in American higher education and what does a liberal education mean and what's happening in the humanities. So these are all interesting things, but uh, you can see the problem with having a lack of disciplines. So this is interesting. That's interesting.
1: Well, when you write something next, uh, I hope to have you on again. Uh- Thank you so much, Professor Schroetz. It's, it's been a great talking to you and I wish you well.
0: Thank you. Uh, I did take early retirement. Last year when I retired, I was only 78. Um, so um, I have a friend who retired from being a professor at 85 and he makes fun of me and said I took early retirement. But when I tell people I retired at 78, they don't usually think that's very early retirement.
1: Well, well, you know, definitely now that, you know, like you said, now that you're unconstrained, maybe you'll you'll be able to write some things that are a little outside of, out of your, I mean, this is obviously a very interdisciplinary book, uh, which I really appreciated about it. And, you know, I look forward to more, uh, more works trying to answer these big, impossible to answer questions.
0: Okay. All right. And I'll, I'll send you a couple of links. Yeah, please do. All right. Nice talking well, to you. Thank you.